Tonight I'd like to talk about the life of some of the realized human beings who were living at the time of the Buddha. Some great practitioners among his students and his kin. But I do feel I need to preface this in some way. The two or three points which can be tend to be sometimes a little difficult when telling these stories. One point is that many of these people were monks and, or nuns and some people sometimes find it difficult to hear about this because it makes them feel guilty or aversive maybe because they themselves aren't as radical or because they simply haven't chosen that kind of path. So on that point my suggestion is let's just try to rejoice in those people's commitment, enthusiasm for the path of liberation rather than wondering whether we should do what they do or something else or who is right and all that. Another difficulty has to do with talking about the psychic or supernatural powers which many realized beings were supposed to have or had however you look at it and they're ever present in our stories I personally have no problem whatsoever with those powers but I know again some people feel actually offended or let down or taken for a ride when one does talk about them as if they existed. To me, the mind is such a vast and unfathomable, mysterious, powerful phenomena that I think anything is possible, but I don't know. So, also good to know for the development of insight for true liberation, they're absolutely not important or necessary in any way. So. Either way, we can relax. <laughs> or you can take it symbolically or as a legend, or you can take it for real. It's all fine. The last point of difficulty is the role and position of the women in the society of those days. It was a completely unquestioned, deeply patriarchal system of which all these realized people, including the Buddha, were part. And all I can say and want to say is that having spent many years in India of today, this is how it still is to a large extent, and this is how it was. And I certainly am very aware of the importance and necessity of profound changes, some which have happened, some many which still need to happen in our society, in our minds, in those terms. But as for those old days, I feel I can't, I don't want to assess or judge or condemn or justify any of these people's customs. I'll just leave it at that. Having said all that, I hope you can perhaps be touched (laughs) 
I some of the stories and legends about people who first discovered and practiced these teachings, which are still so applicable, so helpful, and so liberating today for us now. I hope that it's not just old stories, but that these people's life stories create some inspiration in us. And hopefully I can weave in some points that are relevant for us, our practice today, too. Evam me sutam. Thus I have heard. Once the Blessed One was staying at the bamboo grove in Rajgaha, the city of the king of Magda. In this or similar ways begin all the innumerable discourses or suttas the Buddha delivered in the 45 years of his teaching career after his enlightenment under the tree in Bodhgaya, India. Thus have I heard is the voice of one of the finest people, disciple and attendant of the Buddha, Ananda, a cousin of the Buddha. When the Buddha was 55, he needed a new attendant, or a right hand, so to speak, some sort of secretary, and mostly someone who would be a go-between between the Buddha and the vast number of numbers of visitors, disciples, and devotees. At this time, Ananda had been a monk and part of the Sangha for eight years. Sangha, by the way, means something like community or assembly. It means the community of ordained women and men. He had been practicing for eight years and had attained the initial level of awakening. He was chosen for the job. Now, before he agreed to be the faithful, ever-present attendant of the Buddha, he laid down a number of conditions. And I find it's interesting to see that it was okay and it was what was done to weigh the pro and con when there came a request, even when it was a request from the Buddha to lay down conditions if one felt that was necessary. Interesting for those who feel that to be truly devoted to a teacher means to obey more or less with blind faith. An idea one sees, I see often among Westerners, fortunately not very much or at all in Vipassana circles, but in many spiritual circles also of Buddhism I see it a lot. We can think we can trust their own common sense and decide for ourselves. The one of Ananda's condition that's relevant for us in the context here is he made the Buddha agree that he would call him whenever he would give a discourse to someone or 
if he wasn't around, that he would repeat the teaching later, that he would repeat every teaching he ever gave later to him once more. That's one condition. In this way, Ananda would hear all the teachings without exception, and the request was accepted. Now, Ananda also had a most extraordinary ability. He was able to remember accurately everything he had heard. And this may sound far out, too far out to many of us. Perhaps we may assume that it's not meant literally. I don't know if it was meant literally. But it is a faculty, an ability that we all have, but it's one that we don't train and develop anymore at all, I think, less than ever. My teacher, Geshe Rapton, who still grew up and went through all his studies and big parts of his practice, time in his life in Tibet, where learning by heart is the most essential part of uh, education, he developed what is called uh, photographic memory. He knew hundreds and hundreds of those big folios of Tibetan Pecha texts, both sides. There's some text of 1,500 pages, which he just had stored. And we would talk about this, and it said when he was very uh, proficient in that, it would take him 15 minutes to memorize a double-paged Pecha side and sometimes we would ask him something and he wouldn't know right away so he would go <laughs> and he'd read it very interesting for us to, to know that brains seem to be able or minds seem to be able to function in very different ways that uh, we've sort of lost because we have um, 3.6 gigabyte hard disks now, so we think we don't need this. Maybe we don't. After the Buddha's passing away, all the most important fully liberated disciples met at the council in order to recite and confirm all the Buddha's teachings. And it was Ananda who would first recite them, beginning by thus, I have heard. So, one of the names and, or titles of, that Ananda had was the one who has heard much. <laughs> and I'd like to use the occasion to emphasize the great importance of discourses and teachings in terms of a spiritual practice. Those for whom spiritual practice and an inner unfolding of wisdom and compassion is central in life, I feel I can hardly ever hear enough for too much Dharma teachings. Again, my own teachers, many of them very realized, they have been endlessly sitting at the feet of their own achans, lamas, sayadars, or gurus to listen to their teachings. It was very fascinating when 
I first saw my own teacher who I knew he had studied for so many decades and been in a retreat for so long and was quite an amazing person. Some older lama came one day who was invited to our place and my teacher sat right down there in front and I thought, why is he doing this? He shouldn't sit there. He's the teacher. And then the lama came, the old lama came, and he did his prostrations and his bowing. And I started to realize that in a way that was really wonderful, that to him, he was very much sharing and teaching what he knew and what he understood, but that didn't mean that in any way that now he, he was done and he had no need to listen or to re-listen or to deepen his knowledge or his understanding again. So, when those teachers, again many of whom I had the fortune to know, got quite old, so that most of their own teachers had died, they would request teachings from each other. So, for myself, I listened probably to about 70 or 100 Dharma discourses a year, and for years it was probably about 200 often they're highly interesting and fascinating. As you know, other times they're somewhat less, and sometimes they're a little bit boring. And each and every time it was important, it was enriching, it was relevant. Even though the teachers in Asia, for example, they repeat themselves a lot more than we Western teachers are allowed to. Nobody blinks. If I had one great teacher, he gave a talk the first day of a retreat. The second day of retreat, he gave word by word the same talk. His translator didn't blink. And we tried not to blink, <laughs> watching our thoughts you know, about it. And then I realized it's important, whatever that was, what he was saying. <laughs> In the Tibetan tradition, the essential base of the practice is said to be te sam gom. Listening, reflecting on what's been heard, and meditating. Unless we listen, very frequently and very openly, are often confused ideas on what this spiritual way of being is all about will not be sufficiently clarified, will not support a deep practice. And of course, listening also includes reading. Though it seems that often the spoken word has a lot more power. Unless we reflect on and contemplate regularly and deeply what we've heard or read, it won't touch or truly change our deeply ingrained old views and concepts about ourselves and about the world. Unless we meditate on all this, obviously a deep and liberating inner transformation will not come about. Gom, that word in Tibetan, actually means to get acquainted, to get familiar with something. It suggests a profound 
change in our habitual patterns and views. So listening is the starting point and the basis. Thus, I have heard. Ananda's report on the Buddha's teaching comes to us through the centuries, the millennia. And even though we may have heard of him for the first time today, we can feel infinitely grateful to him, the first link in an uninterrupted chain of people who have passed on this incredibly precious teaching all the way to us today. In the, what's called the Theragatha, the collected saying of the elders, Thera means elder man, and Terry means elder woman in a respectful or honorific sense. In this volume, there's some verses by Ananda. Here's one. 82,000 teachings from the Buddha I have received. 2,000 more from his, his disciples. Now 84,000 are familiar to me. It means many. <laughs> and he continues, those who have heard nothing and understood nothing just age like oxen do. Their stomach only grows and grows. Their insight deepens not. Follow this who have heard much. Thus, what is heard will not decline. This is the taproot of the spiritual life. A Dharma guardian you shall be. After the Buddha's passing away, Ananda finally had the time again to practice very fully. He was needed and expected that this council where the Buddha's discourses were going to be recited and confirmed. He knew most of the discourses, but only fully enlightened, fully liberated beings were allowed to participate in that council. So they urged him to really practice, (laughs) to get it quickly. So it said that the last day before the council, Ananda really into sitting and walking. He meditates all night. The conference would start at sunrise, whether uh, with or without him. It said that while he was doing walking meditation, be towards the morning, throughout the night, he noticed he was making a little too much effort. He was very subtly pushing, and I imagine it's pretty subtle in his case. So he decided to lay down to meditate. He said that while he was laying down, the effort came right into balance. And as he was laying down, his heart and mind opened through all those stages of enlightenment, second, third, fourth. And when his head reached the pillow, he said to have reached full awakening. And also all the psychic powers at the same time, they're sort of extra. And so in the very next moment, he materialized in his seat at the council, where they all had been waiting for him. <laughs> and the sun rose at the horizon, and the council could begin.
An interesting part here is really the question of right, appropriate effort, which is really the art of meditation. It's an ongoing tuning and balancing. On one hand, it takes a tremendous effort to wake up to the here and now. Do that with continuity throughout the day, throughout the night even. To come into contact with the present experience over and over again. That kind of effort is really needed. On the other hand, it's a matter of accepting and allowing things or experiences to be exactly as they are. Not trying to get rid of it, not trying to keep them, not trying to control them. Perhaps our effort or approach could be described as a soft precision or a relaxed carefulness or interested non-doing or flexible unshakability or a decisive or a gentle decisiveness. Looks like paradoxes, but really their qualities are very complementary. Helping us to awaken, to open, to meet life as it is at this moment. So right in the moment when Ananda relaxed some of the intensive effort, the qualities or factors of awakening, awareness, investigation, energy, joy, calm, concentration, equanimity, they sort of lined up or fell into perfect balance. And he realized full awakening, liberation. He was known for his caring for the needy, for the sick, was famous for his unstoppable willingness to sacrifice himself for good cause for others. There's various reports, such as the one where the Buddha got attacked by a crazed elephant. Ananda, who was present, immediately threw himself between the Buddha and the elephant. It said that the Buddha, who knew that he himself wouldn't be harmed by the animal, had to remove Ananda by means of his psychic powers, because Ananda wasn't going to much. So sometimes I just imagine, get the picture, you know, how the elephant and how Ananda was removed. Never saw this. So. His devotion, service to others, devotion to the practice, was truly limitless. Devotion, if it's paired with wisdom, is a powerful force on the past, closely related to faith, of which Ursula spoke earlier on. There's another episode in Ananda's life I'd like to mention. He had an important role connected to the creation of the Sangha of women, of nuns. And to talk about this, I first want to speak about the probably most important woman in all of Buddhist history, Maha Pachapati Gautami. She was the sister of the Buddha's mother, 
the Queen Maya. So she was the Buddha's aunt. His mother, the Queen Maya, had died seven days after his birth. So Maya's sister, Pachapati Gotami, she was the second wife of King Suttodana, who ruled in Kapilavatu, the Buddha's hometown, in northern India, what's nowadays Bihar. So Pachapati became the Prince Siddhartha's stepmother soon after his birth. It was her who nursed him, took care of him throughout his childhood. After the Buddha's enlightenment, many of the men of his people, the Sakya clan, decided to renounce the world, to ordain, to devote their life to the pursuit of spirituality, of happiness, of liberation. Now, years later, when the king Suttodana had died, the queen, Pachapati, and many other women felt, felt that they too wanted to enter the homeless life, become nuns, practice the Dharma in that very full and radical way. Yet in those days, this had been unheard of, even more so for the higher, more educated class of people. Women's place was in the family, in the house, in the palace. Perhaps also we need to know that there weren't in those days actually safe monasteries or viharas or ashrams to stay in. The homeless ones lived under the trees, in the woods. Yet, Pachapati requested the Buddha, her stepson, to accept her and other women into the order. The Buddha first refused. There were too many reasons that spoke against this. The potential problems and difficulties seemed too great. Women who would live spend the nights outdoors in parks and groves in woods. Women who would go begging in the villages, in the towns, as the monks did. The good reputation of the Sangha would be endangered if suddenly both male and female would live together in the same community. All things unheard of in the society and culture of those days. A society that was pretty tight and medieval in its views and customs. But Pajapati didn't give up. Together with 500 women, it says, again that means very many, she walked on foot from her palace and hometown to another town, Vesali, where the Buddha was staying. She went and stood at the gate to the grove where the Buddha and many monks stayed. It says that she had her hair shaved. She was dressed in saffron robes. She stood there with swollen feet, covered with dust, with tears in her eyes, as it says. To imagine the determination, the courage it took for those princesses and court ladies of those days to walk a hundred miles on foot. 
It was Ananda who found her there. She actually also was his aunt. She told him that the Buddha had refused to ordain her, and Ananda was very moved and immediately went to the Buddha with the same request, and he too was refused for the same reasons. But Ananda didn't give up. He asked, Is it possible for women to reach full enlightenment, O Buddha? Which, of course, the Buddha fully affirmed. Again, not quite self-evident in those days. Again. So Ananda said, so Wasn't it Pajapati? Wasn't Pajapati the nurse who nourished the Buddha with her own milk, who was the governess, compassionate like his own mother? And wouldn't it be appropriate then that she too could lead the holy life, could enter the community, the order, and reach awakening quickly in that way? Whereupon the Buddha agreed. Ananda knew how to. (laughs) (laughs) So, Pachapati became the founder and the leading figure of the nuns' sangha. Pachapati means leader of a big assembly or community. She had been named that way according to a prophecy at her birth. Now the prophecy was fulfilled. Not only her determination and her devotion to the Dharma, but also her practice was extraordinary. Very soon she attained complete liberation, was fully awakened. In a verse she said, All suffering is understood. The cause, the craving, is dried up. The noble eightfold path unfolds. I have reached a state where everything stops. Also daughter of Pachapati, the beautiful Nanda was among the first 500 nuns. In a gatha, in a verse, she said, Deep within myself, I have lost all interest in passion. Now I am quenched, calm, and free. Among this old text, there's a volume called the Teri Gata. It's verses and songs of the liberated, enlightened women of the Buddha's time. Very powerful, very inspiring verses. Maybe also a little bit of warning for those interested. Seems that these women were pretty radical in their renunciation of the senses and of the world. The book is called, it's also part of that book came out as a book in English. It's called The First Buddhist Women by Susan Murcutt, if anybody is interested. Maha Pachapati, as she was called, Maha means great or significant, lived and taught up until the age of 120. When she died, and during her cremation, a number of impressive miracles were said to happen, to have happened, At the end of a 
deeply meaningful life of a great and wise woman. The Buddha lived up to 80 years, or 80 or 81 years. After his death, his Parinibbana, Mahakasapa, one of his closest, most important disciples, was selected as the sort of representative or the elder of the Sangha. They didn't have or needed Dharma heirs in those days or supreme patriarchs yet. In fact, it seems that the Buddha had discouraged that. seems to be an invention of the later times. In connection with the elder Kasapa, there's an event very famous in sense circles. When Kasapa asked the Buddha about the deepest meaning of the Dharma, the Buddha silently held up a flower and Kasapa's mind opened. He understood. The story may be a later edition, but it beautifully makes the point of coming back to the moment, this moment, now, where everything is already complete, if our hearts are present and open to it. After Mahakasapa had died, the function of being the spokesperson or representative of the Sangha was passed on to Ananda. In this way, he became an essential link in the chain or lineage of uh, two and a half thousand years of unbroken tradition of practitioners. He lived for another 40 years after the Buddha's death and made it to 122. When he felt that his death was near, he traveled once again from Rajgaha to Vesali on foot, certainly just as his teacher had done before his death. Now when the local peoples or clans or tribes, which often were very competitive or had even open conflict, wars with each other, heard of Ananda's impending death and that he was coming, they all went to meet him on his way. And perhaps we have to imagine that they were incredibly pious, incredibly devoted, perhaps also rather superstitious, and let's say, clever also. When you get a great saint die on your land, you get the sight of a tomb, perhaps a stupa, that's something very auspicious, brings blessings, perhaps it also brings some pilgrim tourist business, as it happens in Bocaya and other places these days, or the Vatican in Rome, or other pilgrim places. It is said that Ananda foresaw trouble, and he was so compassionate that he used his psychic powers to move high up in the air, where he let his body go up in flames, so that they wouldn't fight about it, over it. So they got the message and they distributed his relics in a friendly, in a 
fair way among all of them. They made stupas, but they kept the relics. And for the last part of this talk, I'd like to talk about two other important disciples of the Buddha. But Sariputra and Moggallana, his two chief disciples. In a village not far from the capital of the kingdom of Magadha, Rajgaha, today's Rajgiri in Bihar, Kalita Moggallana was born. He was the son of a well-to-do, respected family of Brahmins. But the Moggallanas had close and friendly ties with another family that lived in the next village. On the same day, they also had a son called Upatissa. The two boys became inseparable friends very early on in their life. They had very different characters. Upatissa, who was later known as Sariputra, was very active, very outgoing, courageous. He really was a pioneer. Kalita Moggallana was rather conservative. He cherished and cared for what he had gained. And since both families were quite wealthy, the boys could spend most of their time with games, sports, having fun. They had a good childhood. One day, they were young adults by that time, they went to watch a show, some sort of theater performance in the nearby city. And the play was meant for entertainment, but the two somehow tuned in and recognized some deep meaning in it concerned with the purpose, with the meaning of life. And this was the trigger, trigger for the decision to renounce the world, to become ascetics, in order to engage in a deep and a wholehearted search for truth and for liberation. And they walked on foot across India, looking for teachers or gurus, learning and practicing rituals, prayers, sadhana, meditations. Even nowadays, there are, I think, one or two million sadhus walking the streets of India. I always find it amazing that this is still going on in many different ways and forms. Swamis, ascetics, the people who always naked, even when it gets really cold, their body is smeared with ashes, they never cut their hair. Quite scary looking figures sometimes. The yogis, fasting, praying, chanting, meditating, searching for truth. I've been on a pilgrimage that went up in a cave up among the glaciers of Kashmir, been 500 sadhus who were part of that pilgrimage. So one person who had taken a vow never to lie down had been standing day and night for years, leaning over a branch or a rope or something in the night to catch some sleep. His legs were really impressive. 
not sure how that relates to liberation, but it definitely um, meant that there were incredible qualities, you know, of patience, of endurance, of letting go, of, of acceptance, of all that, that uh, were practiced there. Recently, I saw a documentary of a Swami who, it was the most amazing thing I've seen. He rolled sideways from his hometown in central India to a holy place in Kashmir, up north, he rode for six to eight months, over four to six thousand kilometers, like four thousand miles. And you see him in that documentary, sometimes it's on big roads, you see all the lorries, and you know how the traffic is in India if you've been there, and it's scary. He's rolling and people are trying to make sure the lorries wouldn't hit him. And at the end, there was this big mountain where the temple was on, the, on top, so he'd roll up the stairs. You know, he had already rolled for six months, and he was bruised and bleeding. He was really high when he was up on that temple. Now again, you know, I'm not going to go into those practices. Um, it's an amazing feat of devotion, of endurance. And... Also, I think it really makes us appreciate insight meditation at Gaia House. <laughs> doesn't it? It doesn't look all that difficult after all. <laughs> so Sariputta and Moggallana walked and practiced for 20 years in the streets and woods of India. One day, Upatissa Sariputra met Asaji, one of the very realized disciples of the Buddha. He asked him for the teaching, and Sariputta heard one verse of the teaching, and immediately attained the initial first level of awakening. And he came back to his friend, Moggallana, he saw that his friend was changed, he was radiant, he looked relieved, he looked happy, contented. Sariputta repeated the verse to his friend. And Moggallana's mind opened as well. He understood. I'm sure you want to hear the verse. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm afraid it might be a disappointment. It's not so obvious to some of us. The verse says, the Tathagata, the Buddha, has told the cause of all, of all conditionally arisen things and of what brings about their cessation. That is what the great Samana, the Buddha, taught. Got it? <laughs> Don't wanna, and I can't really say much about this. My sense is that maybe the, the new or evolutionary element in this was that what he said is, it doesn't point at the peak experience within conditioned ex conditionality, which what much of those practices of deep absorption had to do with. It was still conditioned phenomena, though it was incredibly far out, infinite, um, merging with the divine, yet it was still an experience within the conditioned, and this statement somehow seems to point beyond. In any case, it was 
clear for the two. And we may think that was easy for them, but we also often forget there were 20 years of intensive practice of asceticism, of deepest concentrative jhana, jhanic absorptions. That was quite common in those days. We often hear of those events and exchanges between students and teachers, especially in Zen. The student asks, what's the deepest holy truth? And the master says, open vastness, nothing holy. And the student is enlightened. We forget that the student has been sitting in Sazen day and night for 30 years, just before that. <laughs> Good to remember when we sit and walk here. It seems important. Before Sariputta and Mokarana went to meet the Buddha and joined that Sangha, they went correctly and according, in accordance with their tradition, to their own teacher to report. And this story about Sanjaya, their teacher, I find it quite tragic. It says that Sanjaya recognized that they had found the way to ultimate liberation, which wasn't the way Sanjaya was teaching and had found himself. But he recognized and saw that. But because he had hundreds of disciples and followers, he couldn't afford to become a student again himself. I think it's so important that we always remain students in our hearts. For me personally, it's even a sign and measure of the genuineness and seriousness of those who teach, as I mentioned, as I said about my own teachers before. That day we always are willing, interested, and open to learn. So, Sariputta and Moggallana went to the Buddha, and he immediately declared them his chief disciples. Now, some monks objected, saying that there were others who had been the Buddha's disciples for much longer, who had been enlightened for many years. The Buddha's then spoke about the power of intentions, of aspiration, of what is called aritana. He said that, for example, the monk Kondanya had practiced for many lifetimes with the intention to be the first disciple who would get awakened, the first disciple who would meet the Buddha, hear the teaching, and get awakened. And Kondanya did. For those who've heard the story, there were five ascetics who left the Buddha when he broke his complete fasting and then later when he met them after his enlightenment he taught them the Dharma and Kundanya understood immediately. So it's said that with his to become the Buddha's chief disciples, and they did. Again, I think whether we take this literal or symbolic, it makes a point saying that intentions, aspirations may have power. Maybe it is relevant 
if we say and truly mean it, you know, for the rest of our life. Mary's liberation, no matter how long it takes, no matter what it takes, or it's relevant if we say Mary realized Buddhahood for the benefit of all living beings and really mean it, and really say that over and over. If, even though right now it looks, this to me, completely out of my reach to really make those aspirations. Perhaps our practice sometimes is just a little narrow. Maybe like the view a spider must have up in some corner, unable to imagine that you know, there's actually a big room with all the people in this actually a big building and all this is happening in a huge, vast world. Practice becomes more powerful if we open up to include vast spaces of place and time and vast <laughs> numbers of beings. If we open it up beyond our petty personal concerns. How was my need today, you know? Somebody got in my walking space, oh God, to make it last. Moggallana attained full liberation quite immediately after he had met the Buddha. He became famous also for his psychic powers. And because of that, especially because of that, he was a great teacher because he could see immediately what it was that would most benefit people in terms of practice. Maybe those who were attracted to beauty, if they were given the meditations that were often done in those days to contemplate decaying bodies or what was inside under the skin to sort of dispassion someone, this wouldn't work so, so well for somebody who was used and acquainted and attached to beauty. So we would find another means to, to have them contemplate beauty in a way that they would see the decay and the change in that. Or again, perhaps for some aversive types, it would be good to make them practice metta or make them think about beautiful qualities such as generosity or, or integrity or things like that many instances where Mogulyana and of course also the Buddha would see, recognize immediately what people, where they came from and what they needed so their path would be quite right on, easier sometimes than if that isn't seen. Said that Sariputra needed a little longer to attain full liberation, needed three weeks. He became famous for his deep wisdom, detailed, precise knowledge of the workings of the mind, systematized Buddhist psychology or Abhidhamma and taught it, or at least the beginnings of it. Sariputra and Moggallana both died at age 84 a few months before the Buddha. Just as their characters were different, so were their deaths different. 
Shariputta died in the house of his family. He had been ill and he died very peacefully. Two weeks later, Moggallana died too, but under very difficult, very different circumstances. Jealous followers of another school or sect were after Moggallana's life. They actually hired murderers to kill him. See, often when somebody um, heard the teaching and really deeply understood it, they got converted, and then all the followers had to go over to that um, sect or group. So there was quite a danger in a successful group like the Sangha of the Buddha. So they were certainly uh, much appreciated by a tremendous big number of people, but certainly also there was a lot of sense competition and uh, even the Buddha has been attacked by some uh, uh, jealous relative actually. So it's said that those people actually hired murderers to kill Moggallana and they tried six times and it's said that each time he used his psychic powers to escape however he did that but the seventh time those powers left him apparently had there's some unwholesome karma left from the past so he got totally beaten up all bones broken was left lying there and he managed just to drag himself all the way to where the Buddha and the Sangha were staying and there he died and yet in spite of the horrible circumstances he never lost his inner balance and poise his deep inner peace. I think that's where true freedom really lies. Not in our attempts to create pleasant states and our attempts then to keep them. We don't know what life holds for us. It is really that kind of equanimity, that kind of deep allowing that will bring ultimate peace. Sariputta and Moggallana had been such wonderful people that the Buddha said that the community was feeling a little empty after their death. Not so much as an expression of his grief, but an expression of the enormous appreciation he had for those wonderful human beings. This is the last account. In spite, or perhaps because, of his prominent position in the Sangha, Sariputra was specially known and loved for his simplicity, for his friendliness, for his compassionate caring. He who held the highest rank usually waited until all the others had left for alms rounds. And instead of going first, he stayed behind and he would go and arrange the place, you know, clean up the mess that some had left behind. Imagine some those people are also quite uneducated, maybe quite rough and tough guys. Then he'd visit those who were sick, make sure their needs were taken care of, get them medicine, and then only he'd go out to the nearby town or village to beg for alms. The Buddha spoke the following verse after Sariputta's death in honor of the great saint. To him, 
strong in patience like the earth. To him who, strong in patience like the earth, of his heart and mind had absolute sway, who was compassionate, was kind, serenely cool, and firm as earth with all, now homage pay to Sariputra who has passed away. Himu was strong in patience like the earth, was compassionate and kind and serene. All these great human beings and their perfect practice are still effective, still manifesting in some ways. Their liberating teachings, their methods, their insights are still available to us. They've come to us through the centuries, the millennia, and are here for us today, here and now. I'd like to sit quietly for a minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.